invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Your bulletin says uh, that the text this morning will be all of Exodus 3, uh, because that's what I gave to Kathy to put in there, but we'll be just working through verses 1 through 12. Exodus chapter 3, be reading verses 1 through 12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let's pray. Father, whenever we come to you, we come to a holy God in whose presence we do not deserve to be. And yet, on the basis of the blood of Christ, we come. We come to your holy word to listen, to press our ears up against these holy words, and to let them ring true in our hearts. And I would ask that we would listen intently to you, our holy God, as you speak to us from your word. Point us again freshly to our Lord Jesus Christ, who offers us reconciliation with you, and offers us to follow him. Help us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This is a well-known passage. You've heard this story before of the burning bush, I'm sure. There are two verses, perhaps, that encapsulate this text. It would be when God speaks 
to Moses from that bush in verse 5 and says, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In that moment, God speaks to Moses and tells him, basically, stay away. And then God speaks in verse 12 and says, but I will be with you. There is a God who is holy and whose presence we do not deserve to be. And yet there is a God who is holy and says that he will be present with us. This is the God of the Bible. And we always are stretched by this tension that there is a God who is holy and there is a God who is near. And this passage reveals this God to us in such a unique way. This passage as really all of Exodus does, unveils the uniqueness of our God. When we say that he is holy, we mean that he is separate from sinners, that he is not like us, that he is perfect in all of his perfections, that he is separate from the things that he has made. He is perfect. He is pure, which is to say he is holy. And we are addressed by this holy God in this text And we see his uniqueness throughout, and each section of this text reveals something unique about our God. And so we'll unpack this in kind of four movements as the text reveals to us our unique God. We see the uniqueness of the setting of this uh, event here. Chapter 3 begins with Moses in the land of Midian, which was just a territory occupied by the Midianites, probably in the... um, southeast of the Sinai Peninsula. And there he was tending his father-in-law's flock. This might not strike you as too unique, but we'll try to unpack this a little bit. It shows that there is a, the whole setting of these events is unique and peculiar in comparison to the way that we would tend to do things. If you read the Bible with kind of a fresh glance at it, you'll, you'll be amazed at how often the Bible speaks contrary to what we would expect things to be like. It does not say things that are normal to humans. It says things that are really different to us. We say we're good. The Bible says we're bad. We say thing, everything is okay. The Bible says not everything is okay. We say we're headed to heaven. The Bible says, no, you're headed to hell on your own. The Bible contradicts us almost at every turn. It reveals that our God is so unique from us. And as we live our lives, we often have our trajectories of the way things that we think are go- they're going to go. And then we find, if we compare our plans to what really happens, we often find that our plans are so out of line with what actually happens. Why is it that things so often turn out differently than we expect them to turn out? Why is it that things don't usually go our way? Why is it that our life is usually harder or different than what we would have done if we had written the script? Perhaps it's to show us that we're not writing the script. There is a God who is in charge of everything, and he does not take advice from anyone. 
And our lives are a testimony to that almost every day. This section of Exodus is fascinating because although we can read from the beginning of Genesis to this point in Exodus in a couple of hours maybe, it's really a span of thousands of years that have passed. And that means that there's a lot of things that have happened that have gone unnoted by Scripture. And yet Scripture unveils to us the things that we need to know. One of the things that we need to know is found in Genesis chapter 15, 18 through 21, where God makes a promise to Abraham that is going to really lay out the storyline of the rest of the Bible. When God says to Abram, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, that's Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Then it goes on to describe all the area of land that he's going to give, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, some of those names we read in our text today. But when we look at Scripture and we read through it quickly, we might fail to notice that hundreds of years have passed from that promise to what we see here in Exodus. It was about 400 years before this chapter of Exodus that God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, that know for a certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would occupy that land. And if you know anything about God, you know that he is capable all the time of doing whatever he wants. And so in that moment, he could have just given that land right then to Abraham and his descendants. But he says for 400 years, Abraham's descendants are going to be in a land that's not the land he's giving to them. And so a lot of time passes. And so we see the uniqueness of this setting that God is waiting to fulfill his promise. And that means that his people need to wait as well. Moses has been waiting for a long time also when we come to chapter 3, verse 1, and find him shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. In chapter 2, when Moses had grown up, he went out and saw his Hebrew brethren being oppressed, and he comes to his mind that he's going to try to bring some sort of liberation to them. And he does that by murdering an Egyptian. And then the next day, he tries to intervene with the struggle between two Hebrews, and he gets rebuffed by them. And Pharaoh finds out that he's murdered an Egyptian, and so Moses flees. And so these high hopes that he seems to have, that he's going to bring some sort of help to his people, are quickly snuffed out. And he has to go into the wilderness of Midian. Moses knows something about plans not working out how he had expected them to. And now we find him in chapter 3, not in the land of his upbringing, of Egypt, whose culture he knew. And nor do we find him in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. He's in this in-between land. And Moses recognizes this because he names his son in chapter 2, verse 22, Gershom, which means sojourner. 
Now, he's been a sojourner in a foreign land. And we come to chapter 3, verse 1, and 40 years have passed since we last saw Moses. He's now an 80-year-old man. 40 years is a long time. And yet, just between verses, 40 years passes in a breath. For Moses, it didn't pass in a breath. It passed in a lot of breaths. And you might think that Moses is wondering, what is up with my life? What am I doing? What am I about? What is going on? During that time, he gets married, he had children, and he turns into a shepherd, not of his own flock, but of the flock of his father-in-law. He's not now that confident young man that we met in chapter 2. Something has changed, namely 40 years of change. He's now this seasoned, older man, and he's spent 40 years waiting, 40 years of being a shepherd. Was God uninvolved in this? Had he just kind of let go of Moses and just let him to kind of float around for those 40 years? Of course not. Would it have felt like that to Moses? Perhaps. Might it feel like that to you? You float around in life for a while feeling like, where is God in all of this? What is going on? What is he doing? Perhaps. But is God uninvolved? Absolutely not. He is involved. Psalm 77.20 says, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Before Moses was going to be summoned by God to be the person who leads the Israelites out of Egypt, he was going to spend 40 years tending the sheep of someone else before he was allowed to tend the sheep of God. It was a time of preparation. God doesn't always move as quickly as we might like. He moves at his pace, in his timing. And that shows the peculiarity of our God, the uniqueness of our God, that he works at a different pace from us. And he uses the pace that he uses to sharpen us, to refine us, to prepare us for the things that he would have us do, just as he prepared Moses for this moment. So there's this unique setting to what's happening before the burning bush. Moses has spent 40 years waiting, and the Israelites have spent 400 years waiting. So there's the uniqueness of the setting. And then there's this unique sight of God. Verse 2. The unique sight of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Were you to meet God, what would you see? For Moses, his sojournings have led him to see 
a sight that has lasted in its enduring quality and meaningfulness for now thousands of years. During the normal course of Moses tending his flock, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. First note that this angel of the Lord appears to Moses. This same man who we see in chapter 2 and now has been waiting for 40 years, it's not a random appearing. This is a very intentional appearing, very specifically chosen by God that he would appear to Moses. And it's so odd because Moses is in this backwater kind of place with a dead-end career, and yet God chooses to reveal himself in this place of isolation to this man who has been kicked out of Egypt, ostracized from his own people. And there the angel of the Lord meets him. This angel of the Lord is an important figure in the Old Testament. It's worthy of greater consideration than we'll give to it here, to him here. Just a quick note that this angel of the Lord appears, and yet it is God, in verse 4, who called out to Moses from the bush. And so this figure of the angel of the Lord is identified with God, with Yahweh himself. He's closely identified with God, and yet in some sense separate. He bears the name of God. It says in Exodus 23, verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. God is treating the Israelites contingent on how they treat this angel of the Lord. This figure has a position of prominence in the Old Testament. And it's a figure that disappears when you come to the New Testament. And we see that this figure is at least a foreshadowing of the reality of Christ Jesus, the Son of God who is the one that we look at in order to see the Father, just as the angel of the Lord presents God to the people of Israel. Many theologians identify this angel of God as a, not a created angel, not of the order of angels of Michael and Gabriel, or even of Satan, but of the order of an uncreated one, the very Son of God himself who appears in the Old Testament. Many theologians see this as a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ himself. Either way, this is a prominent person who appears to Moses in this burning bush. And this captivates Moses' attention. This is a spectacle. It, It grabs him. Some people try to explain away this burning bush as just some sort of natural phenomenon, but that is not the case at all. This is something that is unique. It it makes Moses go over to want to see this great sight. Moses was not unfamiliar with the wilderness of Midian. He spent 40 years there, and so this is an unusual sight, something that doesn't occur really at any other time in his life. There's a hiatus to the natural order of things. If you've ever burned something, you know it burns up. And eventually the fire goes out. 
But this fire has no need for fuel to sustain it. It it continues on, self-sustaining. It needs no outside energy. It contains all that it needs within itself to continue burning. The bush is not burned because it has no need of the fuel of the bush. So Moses observes this and goes and sees this great sight. As amazing as it is to see a bush that is burning and yet the bush is not consumed, I would suspect that it would be even more amazing when you hear that bush start talking to you. (laughs) Verse 4, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. That will wake you up. The Lord speaks from this bush. Moses, being wise, responds by basically saying, I'm here, I'm present. What would you want to say to me? The Lord chooses the way that he reveals himself intentionally. So this burning bush is not just a random way that God arbitrarily chose to reveal himself to Moses. It is intentionally selected. The imagery of fire is an image that continues throughout the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 13, as the Lord is leading his people out of Egypt, it says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So there the Lord reveals himself again in this pillar of fire, fire being essential to the revelation of what God is. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is perfectly holy without any sin whatsoever. At Sinai, when God gives the law to the people in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day there, are, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The fire of God displays something of his power, his terrifying power. At the end of Exodus, when the tabernacle has been completed, God fills the tabernacle with his presence. It says in Exodus 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. 
fire of God was an enduring testimony to his presence, and yet also an enduring testimony to the reality that the people could not get very close to him. The fact that God reveals himself in this burning bush as a fire that does not consume that which it is next to or in makes you ask the question, how can you be near this holy God without being consumed? How can that happen? When Moses approaches this bush, in verse 5, God speaks to him and says, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. There's no chit-chat here. No discussion about the weather, no how-do-you-do's. Just immediate stop where you are. Do not come any nearer. Isn't that a strange thought? Do we ever feel inclined to tell people, don't come close to God? It's hazardous to your health. I think that by and large, we present to people a God who is not intimidating. Now make no mistake, God has provided a way for people to come to him, but only one way and all other paths by which people would try to come before this holy God, they will find that they are not welcome. And Moses quickly finds that he has to go through the process that God declares in order for him to be in his presence. He tells Moses, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses has to realize something of his unholiness and of God's holiness in order to be able to remain there. He hasn't been invited any closer, but even just to remain there and hear from God, he has to take the sandals off of his feet and acknowledge that the place where he is at is holy. Not because something is special about the sand of that part of Midian, but because there is a holy God in that place in Midian. We don't have burning bushes appearing, but we do have a holy God that we are to present to people. And we need to present him rightly to the people we speak to. And as we heard in our scripture reading this morning, there is only one way to God. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All other paths will end in the destruction of the person who tries to approach God. Moses likely does what God says. There would probably be no option for him. And as we get this continuation of the unique sight of God, we see him in his holiness. We also see that this is a God of promise. Because in verse 6, God immediately goes on to say, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God of promise. The way that God speaks of himself is to 
remind Moses who he is, and he is a God who has made a promise to the family of Abraham. Remember, Abraham was not seeking God. He didn't have uh, an approach to God. God came to him and gave him instructions. God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless the world through him. And now God is appearing to Moses hundreds of years later as a fulfillment of that promise. And as God says this, we are reminded of the fact that God will not stop fulfilling his promises just because the people that he made his promises to have died. Jesus uses this text when he's in a debate with the Sadducees over the resurrection. And he tells them that they don't know anything at all. Jesus says, you are wrong when they hold that there is no resurrection from the dead. Because, he says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Once God becomes your God, he will always be your God. Even if you have to pass through death, he will continue to fulfill his promise to you because he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And as God speaks this way to Moses, he is reminding him of his intention to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob He is going to do it. He is going to fulfill it to them, quite literally. We have this unique, holy God who is the God of the living, not of the dead. We continue to see the uniqueness of God in the unique way that he relates to his people's sufferings. The unique way that he relates to his people's sufferings. We have a unique sight of God, a unique setting where God is revealed. Now a unique way that God relates to his people's sufferings. Might wonder, what does God want to speak about with this sojourner and, in a sense, failed deliverer of Israel? Again, it's been 40 years since Moses tried to do anything for the Hebrew slaves. And now God speaks in a way that would likely evoke some vivid memories for Moses. He says in verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. As Moses hears this, it would likely evoke those memories of what he saw when he looked at his Hebrew brothers and saw them enduring the slavery and the beatings. And he had a heart for them and wanted to deliver them. And now he hears that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has also seen the sufferings of the people. 
And again, God speaks with an, in an active way. He has seen the affliction. He has heard their cry. He knows their sufferings. And then what is he going to do about it? Well, he has come down to deliver them. He takes action. When it says that God has come down, um, it's a way for us to understand that he is now involving himself in the affairs of men in a unique way. It's not that God sits in heaven and just watches what goes on and keeps a hands-off approach. He is meticulously sovereign. He is ruling over his universe at all times, primarily through providence. But at times he intervenes in a way that is unmistakable. Oh, we think laws of gravity and the uh, atomic energies that maintain the molecules of the universe are just a given. They're not. God sustains those things all the time. But there are moments in history where God intervenes in such a unique way that it looks miraculous to us. And so it says that he has come down. He is going to involve himself in a unique way. You might wonder, again, it's been 400 years. Couldn't you have done something a little bit earlier? But the Lord is not slow. Second Peter 3, 8-9 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God always works at exactly the right pace according to his perfect wisdom. As we speak, there are countless, of, countless Christians worldwide who suffer greatly, some from physical maladies, some from natural disasters, some from persecution. And we might be inclined to cry out with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? might wonder, will he rend the heavens and come down? Will he intervene for us? And the answer is, yes, he will. At exactly the right time, according to his timetable, not ours. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. How much longer? did humanity have to wait for the coming of Christ? Then the Israelites had to wait for deliverance. And here we are 2,000 years after the first coming of Christ, and we wait for our Lord Jesus. Won't you come, Lord Jesus? Oh, he'll come at exactly the right moment. There will be a moment where Jesus says, I have come down. At this moment in Israel's history, God has come down to deliver his people out of the hands of the Egyptians. And you see the magnitude of his grace because he's not only going to deliver them out of the oppression that he sees and the sufferings that he knows they endure, but he's going to deliver them into a good, broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which has become just a 
common phrase for someplace that is delightful, that will nourish the people who live there. God is gracious, and he has a good plan for his people. And so we see the uniqueness of the way God relates to the sufferings of his people, that he will intervene for them, but only at the right time. According to his plan, he will come down. And then finally, we see the uniqueness in the summons that God gives. The uniqueness in the summons that God gives. Back in verse 6, it says that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. I would imagine that Moses is still scared out of his socks as he has this experience with God. And as he hears this, however, you have to wonder if Moses is thinking, this is great. I'm so delighted to hear that God is finally going to do something For the Israelites, he desired that 40 years ago, and finally he hears that God has come down. It's finally happening. Moses made a go of it and made a mess when he did so. He got kicked out of Egypt. It didn't go anywhere when he tried to lead that deliverance. And so he may be thinking, finally, it's in somebody's hands who's more capable than I am. God can take care of this. This is great news. God has come down. He is going to deliver them. He says, I have come down to deliver them. And then God says to Moses these shocking words, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. All well and good until now. I hope that there is some... um, like instant replays in heaven that we get to see. (laughs) And we can see the look on Moses' face when he hears those words. I will send you to Pharaoh. You can imagine Moses saying, wait a second, we weren't talking about me. We were talking about the Israelites and you. I'm just a sojourner, happily married with kids, taking care of these sheep, I gave it my best shot and got chased out of town. But now now Moses realizes that this is not just a random burning bush (laughs) that he just happened to stumble upon. God chose this moment, this time, to summons this Moses. Moses' response is something that we can relate to. Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a good question. In chapter 2, Moses seemed to think he was someone. He seemed to think that he was the one to go and bring about this deliverance. But now, after 40 years, he's been humbled. And now, he is fit for use. Who am I? That's a right question. And notice how God answers it. He doesn't answer it by saying, here's who you are. He answers it by saying, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. This holy God, Moses can't even look at for fear of being destroyed. 
says, I will be with you. It's not the measure of your competencies and your abilities that enables you to do the things God calls you to do. It is the mere fact that God says, I will be with you. That's it. And that's enough. That's enough. God gives Moses a sign. It's really a sign of faith. He says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. When Moses goes through it all and comes back to that Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, then he's going to realize fully God was with him. It may be in your own life, not that you're a Moses, not that God has summoned you to the same thing, but it may be in your life you have this desire for godly and good things to happen around you in the lives of people around you. And you might pray and ask for other people to pray for these things to come about. And you may not have considered that God would use you to be the one who would bring those things about. If God were to say, I'm coming to answer those things that you've been praying about all along, and you say, that's wonderful. And then he says, come. Go to Pharaoh. Would you say, yes, Lord, but only if you're with me? If he's with you, that would be enough. You're just an instrument of his grace and of his power. Let's pray. Father, you are holy beyond what we could possibly understand. But we understand enough to know that we cannot come into your presence except through the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have made a way for us to come through him into your presence so we can approach you boldly as your children welcomed now by you. Your perfect love has driven out fear of coming into your presence. So we give you praise. And Lord, help us to be willing to go and do whatever you would have us do as long as you would be with us. And help us to remember that Christ has promised, I will be with you to the end of the age. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.